Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. It's time for a Vault episode. So I think today we're running an episode that you and Julie did back in, when was this one, 2015? Yeah, this would have been March 31st, 2015. And uh, you know, it's a pretty serious uh, and sober episode uh, titled The Gordian Knot of Race that deals uh, with a lot of uh, issues related to unconscious racial bias. Mm-hmm. So this episode is obviously uh, a few years old at this point, but uh, the, the content holds up really well. I think it's just uh, as relatable today uh, as it was in 2015. All right. Well, I guess let's jump right into the episode. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, as promised, this episode is all about race. That's right. We promised to bring you the Gordian knot of race. And Gordian knot, we use that phrase because in Greek and Roman mythology, the Gordian knot was an extremely complicated knot tied by Gordias, a king in Asia Minor. And this knot has come to symbolize a complicated and seemingly unsolvable problem. But here's the crux here. If you want to solve it, It requires novel and bold actions. And we're trotting out this metaphor today because we're discussing the Gordian knot of race as it exists here in the United States. Uh, Yes, here in the United States where we have a black president. Mm -hmm. And as we'll uh, discuss, how I just framed the problem is in itself a slippery slope of logic that leads to questions like, well, how can racial inequity exist in a country with a black president? Right. Because this is this idea that after all, this outward evidence of racism isn't there anymore. Right. We feel like maybe racism has receded into the shadows and something like the Ku Klux Klan. They're not hanging out visibly Mm -hmm. anymore, at least. And that leads us to something uh, even more pernicious. And it's called racism without racists. Yeah, um, you know, you mentioned the bold actions of solving the uh, the Gordian knot earlier, uh, and of course, the, the the classic example of that is that Alexander the Great shows up and just cuts it in half and says, "Hey, I, I, I solved your knot," and you know that works in the Greek myth. But it, with with uh, with racism, uh, you see some you see a number of different uh, false uh, solvings of the uh, of the riddles, uh, false uh, unravelings of the knot. For instance, the sort of Alexander the Great move of cutting it in half is, is sort of like saying, hey, well, look, there are no overt racists in my uh, immediate sphere of influences. There are no overt racists in my workplace. Um, and, and then the, and this leads to people saying such kind of stupendous things as, oh, we live in a post-racist world, a post-race world. And of course, all of that's uh, completely false. Um, because even if you do not have overt racism, if you don't have, uh, you know, hate groups in your immediate midst um, with, you know, outright and open discrimination in your workplace, uh, et cetera, you still have the reality of unsuspecting people who see the world through a racially biased lens. That's right, because you have subtler forms of racism and it persists within the cultural fabric, as we'll discuss mm-hmm. today. Sunhill Milanathan is a professor of economics at Harvard and in an opinion piece for The New York Times, he articulated this problem of racism without racist, quote, ugly pockets of conscious bigotry remain in this country, but most discrimination is more insidious. The urge to find and call out the bigot is powerful, and doing so is satisfying. 
But it is also a way to let ourselves off the hook. Rather than point fingers outward, we should look inward and examine how, despite best intentions, we discriminate in ways big and small. So while there may be good intentions behind this notion of see no color, it mm-hmm. actually does a disservice to trying to achieve equality. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, Stephen Colbert always did a great job of that on the, the Colbert Report. Um, he had the recurring bit where he would say, um, yeah, I don't see race. People tell me I'm white because X, and then there would be some sort of punchline that uh, implied the, uh, the, the, the uh, innate racism of Stephen Colbert, the character. Um, because, yeah, to say that you don't see race, that race doesn't factor into your, uh, into your daily life even, into your perception of those around you, it is, is, is ludicrous. Uh, because when you, when, as we're going to discuss in this episode, when you, when you look below the surface, there is, there is a lot going on there. Um, there, is, there is a tremendous amount of, of scientific research that shows that, that people do uh, notice race, gender, wealth, weight, etc., that we see all of these things. Even if we don't want to believe that we see these things, we see them and we factor them into our judgments of others. Right now, according to psychologist Daniel Kahneman, we think both fast and slow. Fast meaning that we rely on patterns that determine unconscious decision-making that we call sometimes intuitive judgment. And slow meaning the couple of factors that we're actively consciously weighing when we're making a decision. And within this configuration, there is something called implicit bias, and that plays directly into fast thinking. Now, the National Center for State Courts writes that unlike explicit bias, which reflects the attitudes or beliefs that one endorses at a conscious level, implicit bias is the bias in judgment and or behavior that results from subtle cognitive processes, so implicit attitudes and implicit stereotypes, and that they often operate at a level below conscious awareness and without intentional control. And that these sort of implicit biases, they develop over time, and usually it's because of some sort of social connection. This can be your family Mm -hmm. and the sort of implicit bias that they may have that you have assumed for yourself. It can be your friends. It can be um, just people that you even look up to and what their views are. Now, you could also have it from an accumulation of personal experience. And um, I'm talking about experiences that connect certain racial groups with fear or other negative effects. The National Center for State Courts talks about a study in which white individuals who scored highly on measures of implicit racial bias also reacted to images of unfamiliar black faces with stronger amygdala activation. So, We've talked about this before. The amygdala is associated with emotional learning and fear conditioning. So you see implicit bias played out in that way, those kind of associations, which play directly into brain processes. Mm -hmm. And then you know that people share a common social understanding of stereotypes. So again, here is implicit bias kind of leaking into the cultural fabric. So maybe you don't subscribe to that particular stereotype, Mm -hmm. but the fact that it's in our culture – and it may be bandied about, means that you may be passively absorbing it into your own worldview. Yeah, I mean, they're like symbols, which we've discussed at length before. The, the symbol is out there, and the symbol is, uh, is informing your mind uh, at times at a subconscious level. And uh, the same can be said of any of these, uh, uh, these various stereotypes for different racial groups. 
again, patterns at the subconscious level. Mm -hmm. And then there's something called implicit egoism, which is basically that we tend to prefer people like ourselves, however we define that. And at the surface level, that tends to be how we look. Mm -hmm. So there, there are those different ways that implicit bias begins to seep into our lives. Now, when it comes to measuring implicit bias, uh, we have a, a very handy and, uh, and, and very proven tool at our disposal. Um, it comes to us from uh, University of Washington psychology professor Anthony Greenwald, created the Implicit Association Test, or the IAT, in 1998. And uh, he and a few associates... Uh, they, uh, they, they put it out there. They, uh, uh, they, they continue to develop it. And since they initially rolled it out, the test has been used in more than 1,000 research studies around the world. And more than 10 million versions of the test have been completed um, at an Internet site that we're going to have a call out uh, for later. Um, with the IAT, and, uh, and I encourage everyone to, to take it. We, we both took it. Uh, and it's a very, it's a very interesting experience. Uh, and, and you'll see why as I explain it here. Um, you have to categorize a sequence of words or images, such as uh, a black face or a white face, and words uh, as uh, such as good, bad, uh, by pressing one of two labeled buttons. So, for instance, uh, you might be instructed to press the left button when you see a black face or whenever a negative word appears, okay? So, um, you know, black face shows up, push that left button. Uh, the word distrustful shows up, you push that left button. Uh, then the right but then you press the right button when you see a white face or a positive word. So white face, uh, trustworthy or some word of, of that nature. But then they flip it around, okay? So you have to press one button for black positive and one for white negative. Um, and then, the, and this is where the uh, the interfer interference effects come into play. Individuals who associate black with bad will respond much more slowly when black and good share the same response button. Now, um, I I don't know if you had the same experience when you were taking this online, but uh, and again, I was coming into this after reading about how it works. But you really do kind of feel your mind being pulled in half on some of these, where you're having to to stop and think. All right, wait, well, which which side am I am I associating this word with uh, versus uh, versus the other side? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like the Stroop test in that way because it really uh, it, it really takes a lot of attention because you already have that pattern down, mm -hmm. and so they begin messing with the pattern, and that's where they find that space where they can kind of ferret out uh, your the delay time, right, yeah. and uh, also your choices because sometimes you'll get it wrong and it will tell you, right, like yeah. you've made the wrong choice. Um, and, and it gives you a bit of insight, but it also gives you, a, I think, about five to ten questions about just your general um, feelings about politics, right? Yeah. And then later on more specifically about how you feel about politics um, Europeans versus African-Americans and so on and so forth. So some of it, you do have to try to bring a bit of awareness to what your feelings are. And you have to be really honest about it, too. Yeah, and it doesn't take long at all to, to fill it out. Uh, but it, it's amazing how much depth it has, especially, uh, you know, if you're just comparing it to, you know, which X-Man are you uh, tests on, on, on the Internet. Um, now, again, since this was initially rolled out, um, it's been used a lot, and the, and the stats really back up its effectiveness. Um, in fact, when it comes to race, 70% uh, of those who took a version of the test that measures racial attitudes have an unconscious or implicit uh, preference for white people compared to blacks. And you can compare that to a 20% self-reporting percentile. So the individuals who, uh, who took this particular version of the test, 20% of them 
are, are, are self-reporting that they prefer the white uh, faces, that they have a preference for the white faces. Mm-hmm. But 70 percent are actually proving that out uh, based on their delay times. Uh, so the reporting isn't adding up to what their actual actions are. Right. And this shows how they're really cutting into – with this test, they're really cutting into that implicit bias, to that level of bias that we're not aware of in our daily life that's just going on under the surface of our uh, conscious cognition. Now, a 2009 meta-analysis uh, headed by uh, Anthony Greenwald, who, of course, uh, uh, invented the thing, uh, looked at 122 published and unpublished reports of 184 different research studies. And they found that in socially sensitive areas, especially black-white interracial behavior, the test uh, had significantly greater predictive value than self-reports. Again, that's 70 versus 20 Mm -hmm. that we mentioned. Uh, Overall, uh, this uh, meta-analysis study looked at uh, numerous uses of the IAT, including consumer preference, black-white interracial behavior, personality differences, clinical phenomena, alcohol and drug use, non-racial intergroup behavior, gender and sexual orientation, close relationships, and political preferences. And across all nine of these uh, areas, measures of the test were useful in predicting social behavior. Now, it's worth noting that in consumer and political preferences, both uh, self-reporting and implicit uh, measures uh, effectively predicted the behavior. Uh, But self-reports had significantly greater predictive validity. So again, this test kind of serves to to prove out uh, how much of our decision-making and judgment uh, is, is taking place below the surface. I mean, the good news is that implicit bias is malleable to some degree, and it's responsive to the person's motives and environments, and we'll talk about that more later. Yeah, let's talk about... Empathy, which is, of course, is one of the most important factors in uh, untying and unraveling that hideous knot. Yeah, and and also an important factor in just being one of the cornerstones of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's part of the whole cooperative. We're we're all signing into this uh, agreement that we're going to try to help and support each other as much as possible. Well, not all of us have signed that. (laughs) But, you know, generally that's the idea in trying to survive as a species. So you would think that empathy— would be hardwired in all of us, and and to some degree it is, but it may be that levels of empathy exist. Now, in a 2013 study called Racial Bias and Perceptions of Others' Pain by Trawalter et al., this idea of the racial empathy gap was explored. The researchers asked participants to rate how much pain they would feel in 18 different scenarios. So we're talking about anywhere from stubbing your toe to getting... Shampoo in your eye. Oh, yeah, it's the worst. It's the worst. Uh, then they rated how another person, a randomly assigned photo of an experimental target, would feel in the same situation. And sometimes the target was white, sometimes black. In each experiment, the researchers found that white participants, black participants, and nurses and nursing students assumed that blacks felt less pain than whites. And... The researchers were really interested in that, particularly like why why other black people might think that black people experience pain less. And so um, they did some follow-up studies trying to drill down a bit more mm-hmm. as to the cause here. And they found that the more privilege assumed of the target, the more pain the participants perceived for that person. So this is very closely tied to race because we're talking about privilege and um, 
you know, the socioeconomic status of that person. And the reason for this misperception of pain, mm-hmm. this idea that black people could endure more pain or have less pain, was directly related to this assumption that, that because black people face more hardships, they wouldn't feel as much pain. This was their conclusion. So basically, at the subconscious level, the, the brain is saying that person has experienced more pain in their life, probably, and therefore, they're a little more used to pain. They can, they can handle it. Right. And again, they, they bring up the semantics here because they're talking more about privileged people mm-hmm. versus non-privileged people. But they're also seeing the racial bias here because the assumption with the stereotype also is that the less privileged person would be the black person. Gotcha. Now, additional studies have uh, looked into this, uh, this situation, including a 2010 Italian study from Sapienza University in Rome. And uh, this study took both Italians and, uh, and, and black Italians, uh, Italians of African descent, and they uh, watched short films depicting needles penetrating a person's hand or a Q-tip uh, gently touching the same spot. Uh, and then they measured their, uh, their, 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 their empathetic response to that bit of footage. So the results, which line up with what we've been discussing here, people watching the painful episode responded in a way that was specific to the particular muscle they saw being stimulated when the film character was of the same race. But those of a different race, uh, it, didn't, it didn't evoke the same sensiomotor response. Now, they conducted further studies where the researchers tested individuals' responses to pain inflicted on models with violet hands. Now, I read this as violet wands uh, initially in the study, which really threw me off, but violet colored hands. So they essentially are throwing in a third non-existent race of violet colored people here, Mm -hmm. okay? So in in these cases, the participants' uh, empathetic response was restored. So in other words, since they have no script for what uh, violet-colored people would, uh, would deal with in terms of pain in their life. They just re- revert to normal. They're like me, which is an interesting, uh, an interesting factoid. And then there's a 2014 University of Virginia psychology study that looked at children. Specifically, they looked at American children between 7 and 10. And specifically, they looked at uh, American children, and they found that children between 7 and 10 reported that black children feel less pain than white children. Uh, So here we see explicit bias uh, emerging um, in early childhood. Uh, Now, there's zero evidence for racial bias uh, in this study among study participants uh, at the age of five and younger. Mm -hmm. But the bias began showing up among participants at the age of seven and then became prominent at the age of 10. So this is, uh, this is an area that uh, researchers are still exploring because obviously, as, we, as we've discussed, we have the, the explanation that, well, it's based on, on what you, uh, you think the, the personal history for an individual of this race is and where they, they fall in the socioeconomic spectrum. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a lot to expect that level of, uh, of judgment going on with children that are 7 to 10, right? So to what extent is that going on or to what extent is this uh, tied to ex- explicit egoism? It's a good question. It's just it's a pretty stunning study uh, because to know that children that young would be developing those ideas and expressing them at least unconsciously or even overtly is really disturbing. And I think kind of parts the curtain of the, the curtains of the brain to give us more insight into how things are working undercover. 
Uh, Jason Silverstein, in his article on this very topic, wrote, quote, the racial empathy gap helps explain disparities in everything from pain management to the criminal justice system. But the problem isn't just that people disregard the pain of black people. It's somehow even worse. The problem is that the pain isn't even felt. Mm. In other words, empathy is not being engaged. And when empathy isn't being engaged, then you're objectifying that person. And that's that's where your your cornerstone of humanity is crumbling. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it plays into everything from you see a story about uh, some sort of misfortune happening to an individual of another race on television and you're less involved in the story. Uh, it, it, it plays into your yeah, just your, your ability to interact with everyone around you. Like, are you engaging with the same level of empathy? Are you on the same page? Are you giving the same value to, uh, to everyone in your surroundings? No. And that's what was so interesting about that implicit association test, the IAT, that I took is that, yeah, I, I uh, suspected that I would have some racial biases, but I, and I came out as slight on the test. They don't say, hey, you're a racist. They say that you have a slight mm-hmm. preference for European-Americans. Um, but still, like that's it's unsettling to think that this may have been playing out in different ways that I operate in the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think it's so important for people to try to to drill down a bit into themselves and figure out how it might be playing out, uh, because this would make the difference. You have searched for a house before, yes? Yes, a couple of times. Yeah, the, the grueling work of trying to find some sort of housing. And it turns out that, again, the, the racial bias exists here in the housing market. John Taylor, the president and chief executive of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, which helps improve housing in underserved communities, told the New York Times in an interview that polling shows that many Americans think financially stable customers have the same opportunities to obtain good housing regardless of race. Again, this is the see no color logic, right? Mm -hmm. And this just isn't so because there is a 2013 national study that was commissioned by the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, and they found some startling inequities. Uh, They had 8,000 tests here. They had one white and one minority tester of the same gender and age posing as equally well-qualified renters or buyers visiting the same housing provider or agent and in more than half of the test cases, both testers were shown the same number of apartments or homes. But in cases where one tester was shown more homes or apartments, the white tester was usually favored, leading to a higher number of units shown to whites. And overall, black prospective renters were presented 11% fewer rentals than whites, Hispanics about 12% fewer rentals, and Asians about 10% fewer rentals. And as prospective buyers, blacks were presented presented 17% fewer homes and Asians 15% fewer homes. So um, what's interesting about this is that it, it plays out in individual scenarios, and you can look at that information if you want. You can see these individual scenarios where um, once the uh, the real estate agent found out that this person was black or Hispanic, they would actually cancel the appointment. So there mm. were cancel appointments and so on and so forth. But what they also found is that white testers were more frequently offered lower rents, told that deposits and other moving costs were negotiable or were quoted a lower price. And taking into account fees, deposits, and rents, 
Apartments were more likely to cost whites slightly less in the first year of rental than blacks might pay. So it's not you. It's 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 an issue of access to housing, but mm-hmm. it's also an issue to the cost of housing as well. And by the way, these uh, tests were performed in 28 metropolitan areas with no substantial difference across cities or regions. And it's not just housing. There was a study by Ian Ayers and Peter Siegelman, and they found that more than 300 paired audits at new car dealerships revealed that dealers quoted significantly lower prices to white males than to black or female test buyers. And they were using the identical scripted bargaining strategies for the same model of car. Okay, so there was no variation in here because they were trying to do the exact uh, replicated scenario over and over again. The only difference, of course, was gender and race. And the black test buyers were offered initial prices roughly $700 higher and they received far smaller concessions. So, you know, the sort of bells and whistles that a dealer might throw in on a car for you. You know, and we, of course, we also see implicit bias come into play in the workplace, whether one gets a job or not, whether one is paid an appropriate amount, an amount that is on the level with other individuals with the same skill set, expertise, et cetera. Um, For instance, just to look at uh, some quick uh, census stats from 2013, U.S. census stats, um, black men were paid 75% of what white men were paid. White women, by the way, were paid 78% of what white men were paid. And uh, African-American women were paid 64% of what white men were paid. But that's once the paycheck is actually in play. When it comes to even just getting a job and having the, the chance to have a fair shot at a position, um, the bias comes into play in some, some really startling ways. Uh, there are a couple of studies that look at this. One is a 2003 study titled, Are Emily and Greg More Employable Than Lakeisha and Jamal? A Field Experiment on Labor Market Discrimination. This was published in uh, American Economic Review, and it casts some interesting light on all of this. Now, what they did, the researchers mailed out thousands of resumes to employers with job openings and, uh, and measured which ones were selected for callbacks for interviews. Some of these were randomly tagged with stereotypically African-American names, such as the, the title suggests uh, Jamal or Lakeisha, and some with stereotypically white names like, like Emily or Greg. Okay? So what they found was that the same resume was roughly 50% more likely to result in a callback for an interview if they had a white name. 50%. Yeah, 50%. And then in 2009, another study actually tried this out in person. They sent in actual people for low-wage job uh, interviews. Identical resumes, identical interview training, and yet they found that African-American applicants with no criminal record were offered jobs at the at a rate as low as white applicants with a criminal record. Now, in terms of discriminating against African American names, we can also look to healthcare, and we see a study supporting this bias at two national conferences when 720 doctors were shown patient histories and asked to make judgments about heart disease. They were much less likely to recommend cardiac catheterization, which would be a really helpful procedure to black patients, even when their medical files were statistically identical to those of white patients. Now, there's another study about uh, racial bias in healthcare, and 
This one, though, takes more of a generational approach, and it's interesting. Um, There were 202 first-year medical students at Johns Hopkins who participated in implicit association tests. All right, that was the test that we talked about earlier. 69% had an unconscious bias toward whites and 14% innately favored blacks. They also determined that 86% of the students had subconsciously favored upper-class people. Again, there is that, that privileged bias there. While just 3% showed a preference for those of a lower class. So here's the thing about the first-year med school students. They found that the unconscious preferences of students did not affect how they assessed or treated patients of various races and incomes depicted in the scenarios. And this is good news because what this is saying is that this generation may have been exposed to educational curricula focused on cultural competency and that helped them to improve their awareness and the management of their unconscious preferences. So while the racial bias existed, their behaviors stemming from it uh, were not affected, which is a bit of a bright spot in all yeah. this information. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a bright spot. But, but yeah, when you start breaking down like all the ways that uh, that that racial bias, explicit and and implicit, um, disadvantage an individual. I mean, it's really staggering because we've talked about studies uh, that have uh, they've looked into how it affects uh, the purchase of a vehicle, the renting of an apartment, uh, acquiring a job. But other studies have looked at uh, how it negatively impacts uh, a person of uh, of color's ability to get a response from their legislator, hear back about research opportunities at a university, receive fair treatment from a jury. Uh, one study even found that a white hand holding an iPod received 21% more offers than a black hand holding the same iPod Was on eBay. Oh, yeah. my gosh. So, yeah, it ends up impacting like pretty much every area of your life, um, you know, healthcare, schools, every an interaction comes with a potential handicap. All the little things we in, in life that we take for granted and as well as the big things like dealing with employment and and, uh, and 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 law enforcement, it's it's staggering. Well, and the housing thing I thought was particularly unsettling because not only are people given less choices, they were sometimes shuttled mm-hmm. into different communities. And so, you know, the the real estate agents or the real estate companies were actually trying to get you know the their black clients to go into black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so this begins to affect what your choices are in schools as well. And so you see that play out, as you say, all these, these little, um, all these little choices combined with the big choices that are essentially stacked against you at the end of the day, that stack just becomes massive. And yeah. overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but think of things like this in Dungeons and Dragons terms. It's like having a character sheet with all your stats, and then someone says, "Oh, just go ahead and knock, uh, you know, five off of all your stats. You know, all your 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 abilities and your potential." That would be grossly unfair in any uh, you know micro reality of a game. But it's the kind of uh, inequality that is everywhere in the real world. Yeah, it's like that dollar bill analogy that we talked yeah. about in the school to prison pipeline. You know, if you're if everybody's at the starting line initially, and then you have to keep taking steps back uh, because you you're being handicapped, mm-hmm. then you're not going to get to that dollar bill as fast, right? And that dollar bill represents your future. And moreover, you have to then shoulder if you're a person of color, you have to shoulder those stereotypes that are put upon you. So there's also this expectation. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
that's an albatross psychologically, and then it's playing itself out in these real-world scenarios. Yeah. So it would seem that to change this, to have a paradigm change in racial biases, to try to get to a place of equality, it would all hinge on empathy again, the willingness to empathize. And nothing is a greater motivator of empathy than someone trying to imagine what it would be like for themselves. And, of course, we've got a study for this. And, of course, it has to do with a rubber hand again. (laughs) I feel like the rubber hand study just keeps popping up. Uh, 2013 study conducted by the European Research Council and published in Cognition used this rubber hand illusion to get participants in the mindset of one another and – It's really effective. We've talked about it before. It plays into something called proprioceptive drift, and that's where your mind essentially adopts the fake limb as its own and then reacts to it when the fake hand is touched, while at the same time, the experimenter is touching the participant's own hand, which is hidden out of view. So that's how this setup, this illusion works. Now, using Caucasian participants, the researchers in this case tested the participants' implicit attitudes towards people with dark skin. Then they used a dark-skinned rubber hand to make them feel as if it was their own hand. Afterward, they tested participants' racial attitudes after the experiment. And the results? Well, the more intense the participants' illusion of owning the dark-skinned rubber hand, the more positive their racial attitudes came or became afterward. And it's because this illusion created an empathy overlap, creating less differences in the mind of the non-white participants, getting them to that place of empathy that they needed to be in. Yeah, I mean, so much of what we're talking about here just brings me back to the the admittedly tired and worn out analogy, uh, don't judge a book, book by its cover, right? Mm-hmm. But yet, as we've discussed, that's that's what our brain does. Our brain uh, is ha- has a certain economy to it. It has to uh, process uh, all of the stimuli at uh, at a pretty fast rate. So it ends up judging books on covers because that is a, sometimes an effective way of figuring out what's inside of a book. But uh, but if we can actually stop to consider what's behind the book, to mm-hmm. consider to at least flip it over and read the back, right? Uh, you, you you have a lot more empathy. You have a lot more understanding of what's going on, and you have even a potentially a better ability to just distinguish. Um, we see a lot of this in law enforcement. Um, and, and granted, the whole, issue, the whole discussion of law enforcement and race is an entire topic unto itself. But you do see a lot of research coming out of that area. 2009, Brown University and University of Victoria researchers developed a new measurement system and protocol, uh, which they called Effective Lexical Priming Scores, or ALPS, uh, to train Caucasian subjects to recognize different African-American faces. Um, and it's uh, it, it's it has a, a certain amount in common with the IIT that we we already discussed. It's a lot of looking at faces and then teaching the individual to sort of stop and look beyond uh, their initial judgment call of that face. Essentially, in other words, teaching people to notice the difference between be beneath or behind the all too easy classification of race. Which is again, yes, looking beyond the cover of that book, and it's as you said, there there is a a kind of pattern recognition that works behind the scenes. Again, it's that fast, mm-hmm. slow thinking that we can't necessarily help because that's that's how our brains work. But we can help it in slowing down and recognizing that our racial biases exist, so that the next time that we go through that process, 
we've tagged it, and there's there's an awareness there. Yeah, I, I feel like this is a common theme that comes up in the in the podcast is that like so a, a mere awareness of how you're thinking and why you're thinking is not uh, you know a cure all, but it's so often the first step in in addressing the situation. Just realizing how you're dealing with a situation, how you're judging a situation, how you're processing the information that's coming into your brain. Well, especially if you consider it as a behavior, because we mm-hmm. can change our behaviors, right? right? If you think that you're just inherently going to be uh, racially biased, then you're probably not going to change your behaviors, mm-hmm. right? Because you think that's a part of who you are. Right. But if you realize that some of it is just this uh, background noise that you've absorbed, culturally, uh, maybe within your family, then you understand that to be a a sort of behavioral loop in the brain that can be changed. Um, We urge everybody go and test your hidden bias. Uh, You can do this at tolerance.org. There are actually uh, a bunch of different kinds of biases that you can test against, gender, Mm -hmm. race, religion. It's fascinating. Um, And it will help you to come to a better understanding of how you operate in the world. Yeah. Plus, just the the process of taking the test is just kind of uh, it's a little mind blowing. Uh, it's an interesting experience. So I recommend it even if you're just into tests. Yeah, on a meta level, right? Yeah, you can yeah. see it because you're like, I see the pattern. I see you messing with my brain. Yeah. And then they mess with your brain, and you're not quite sure if it happened. It's it's a uh, it's nice trickery and test taking. Also. Um, Check out the excellent Radio and Love podcast episode called Silver Dollar. It's really fine storytelling. It is first-person narrative about um, what it is to be a subject of racial bias and how one man dealt with it. So uh, I I can't uh, recommend that enough. It's great. And if you want to check that out, if you want uh, to go to that tolerance.org link that we mentioned – both of those will be included on the landing page for this podcast episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's also where you will find all of our blog posts, all of our videos, all of our stuff that we've done. That's the mothership. And want to reiterate, too, that, uh, again, we did not cover law enforcement or the legal system when it comes to racial bias. This is a topic unto itself. Um, so if you have any thoughts on this topic or any future ones that you would like to recommend to us, you can do that by emailing us at belowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah.